Welcome to Create Your Own Light, where we harness our past, we embrace our future, and learn to conquer the roadblocks along the way together. I'm your host, Travis Howes. Let's get on with it. This episode is brought to you by YourWelder.com. YourWelder.com is an online directory of mobile welders. Whether at your home or at your industrial processing plant, we come to you. Our community of mobile welders can repair anything from the neighbor's mailbox that you just backed into or the cat bulldozer sitting on your job site. YourWelder.com is a directory of highly skilled professionals willing to help you on your job site on your timetable. YourWelder.com screens all of their welders using tools like photos from social media apps such as Instagram, Parler, and Facebook, even face-to-face meetups. YourWelder.com was built by actual industry welding experts who actually perform this type of work on a daily basis. And here's the best part. They're veteran-owned and operated. So go check them out at YourWelder.com. And also feel free to check them out on social media where I'll include their links in the show notes. So I think being that this is episode 40, we've hit a milestone. Um, I don't know what that milestone is, but this is 40 episodes deep. And I'm going to do long episode alert. I think I'm going to go long here because I've got a lot to say and uh, I don't even know where to start. Um, so we're just going to kind of dive into it. I just got back from a the shortest, longest trip I've ever done. And I mean to tell you, I was exhausted after this. It was only four days. It literally was only four days. And I've done, I mean, over 15 year career traveling. <laughs> I'm used to traveling and being gone a long time, but emotionally... Man, emotionally, I was smoked, and I think, um, I mean, there's a lot of different factors that play into this, but I'm going to tell you about it, and I'm going to tell you kind of how it affected me afterwards, uh, and, and I want to talk about a lot of the stuff that 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 took place, and this was a very, this was a very special trip, reason being, normally when I go around the country to speak, um, it's more of a, uh, for preparation, right, just to... Or when I when I teach courses around the country, it's it's more more so to train up their people so they don't have a catastrophic event. They are trying to prevent someone from taking their life. Their life. It's not so much of a standpoint of, hey, we need you to come up here so it doesn't happen again, right? It's well, that's that's essentially what happened. I don't I don't really know how to even get into it. So here goes. Several months ago, actually, I don't know maybe six, eight months ago, I got a message, uh, from a, from, from someone who follows me on Instagram and actually went, went live with this person. And it turned out to be a firefighter from Cleveland, Tennessee. And what he told me was that one of his really good friends who had just read my book weeks prior took his own life. And I remember, I remember the gut punch that was, and I never met this firefighter. It was a captain out of Cleveland, Tennessee, and his name was Dustin Samples. And I'd never met him, but I remember right then I felt like I failed him. And immediately I had this, um, this personal connection to this, to this firefighter and to this department, although I'd never met a member from their department. Well, Fast forward a few weeks or months or whatever it was, I end up on performing a comedy event or actually multiple comedy events downtown in Chattanooga, Tennessee at the comedy club down there at Comedy Catch. And this firefighter that I went live with brought his wife out to an event. And we started talking afterwards. They got they got several of my books. They passed them around a the station. And I remember him. He was trying to talk to me that night, but there were a lot of people around and I could tell like he had a lot of stuff on his mind. And so I went, I went home that night or went back to the condo that night that the uh, comedy club puts us in and I messaged him and I was like, Hey man, are you working tomorrow? And he said, yeah. And I said, can I come sit with you at, at firehouse tomorrow? So I did. He said, yeah. And, and, and I did, I got, I got up the next day and went and worked out. And then I drove about 20 miles up the interstate to the, t- the city of Cleveland, Tennessee. And I met with him and we sat in a fire station. We just talked and we talked for, for hours, man. And it was just he and I, the rest of his crew, they were off doing stuff. But we had a great conversation and I could tell like he, he was having some problems. So my understanding at the time was captain of his station, Dustin Samples, went through some hard things. And he read my book. His wife gave him my book kind of as a, I wouldn't say a last ditch effort, but as as a 
tangible resource. His wife stumbled across my book, handed it to him. She was going to wait until Christmas, but couldn't wait. So she gave it to him. She thought it would really help him out. And apparently it did. And apparently Dustin, like me, was not a big reader. And he read it in one shift, went home, told his wife. And then she read it in like two days. So unfortunately, a couple weeks later, he, he ended up taking his own life at their home. And it's, uh, it's, it hits me a lot different now, a lot differently now because they reached out, his wife started the 303 project and now it's not only to just honor Dustin, but it's to keep this stuff from happening again. It's, it's to keep people uh, educated in our business is to also to educate spouses and it's to really unveil the ugly, um, with post-traumatic stress, with mental wellness and all this stuff. So they, the 303 Project in the city of Cleveland, brought me into Tennessee to talk to their their entire fire department over the course of three shifts. And I've done this, I've done this many, many times, but I think it was the personal connection that did me in, like that really was a, the emotional connection that I had to it. I'm going to tell you right now, it was hard because I knew I was talking to members of this department. This department was shook by... Dustin taking his own life and I'm going to talk about him in the first person as if I knew him because I want you all to know him even though you've never met him and I want his memory to live on and I want the fact that even though he took his own life you never know this story right here. Something that that we talk about in this story. When I get into the into the the bowels of this thing here in a little bit, it may resonate with you, and his story just may in turn change your story or change somebody you know's story. So when I get to Cleveland, I'm there. I'm talking directly to the Cleveland firefighters. And we're going over post-traumatic stress. We're going over signs and symptoms. I'm going over my story. I'm talking about communicating through trauma. I'm talking about all of these fucked up things. There's so many things I'm talking about. And you can see they're visibly moved, right? And it's it's really resonating with them because they just lived this shit. They just went through this. And Dustin at this, at this fire department was a staple in this fire department. He was the guy that took care of everybody. He was the guy that could shoulder anything. He was the guy that would make sure you had help. The problem was he wasn't the guy that could that could help himself. And unfortunately, that is all too um common in our business. There's a there's a lot of us out there who are always trying to help other people. And the last person that we ever really get to help is ourselves. And sometimes it's just too late. Now, Dustin actually tried to help himself. He went to the Center of Excellence in Maryland at the, uh, the International Association of Firefighters. That They have a Center of Excellence where you can go there for mental wellness or you can go for alcohol problems. And uh, Dustin went there and then he came back and... The thing is, you can't go to these these facilities for 30 to 45 days and come back and not put in work. And I'm not saying Dustin didn't put in work, but this is, this is what I'm hearing through other people that have been to this thing. They go there, they come back, and they, what they fail to realize is it's not over once you leave these treatment facilities. It's not over. Your, your grind is going to be an uphill grind from here on out. You have to be willing to fucking grind. That's that's all there is to it. Your life is forever changed somehow. And if you're going to make it any better, you got to put in the work. You don't just get to go to a facility for 30 or 45 days, check in and check the fuck out. And then all of a sudden, hey, I'm good for the rest of my life. That's like taking a car to the shop, getting the oil changed once and never taking it back. You have to continuously, continuously do maintenance on yourself. Case in point. My rough week. <laughs> um, this shit is never over. And you're in for the fight of your life because that's exactly what this is when you get diagnosed. It doesn't, life doesn't end at the diagnosis. Your life doesn't have to be over, but you are in for the fight of your life and you have to fight all of the time. Every day is not just going to be bliss. 
There's a lot, a lot of tough days out there, but we got to get through them. So Dustin goes to the facility, comes back, and uh, back on the job, back around friends, back around, you know, firefighters who like to drink. And Dustin was a drinker. There's no two ways about it. But the problem with that is with with first responders, we, we're all drinkers. So a lot of us like to drink. The last thing you can do with a guy like me or a girl like this who likes to drink and drink their, their troubles away, the last thing you can do is enable them by meeting them up, meeting them for drinks. And it hurt my heart to hear that because, you know, so many people did that with me when I was going through all my shit. Hey, man, let's go grab some beers. And I was the first one to be like, yeah, let's go grab some beers. Or I would invite somebody. Let's go grab some beers. But we didn't know any better back then. And I say it now. We know better. We do better. We have to treat this like you would anything else. If you know something's harmful for you, you cannot enable your friends and your peers with that fucking crutch. You can't you cannot do that. It is it is so detrimental to their health and their overall safety. And and also it's detrimental to your safety because you work with these people. So we got to stop enabling. And what I mean by that is if you know somebody's suffering, if you have a, a coworker, you have somebody who's having troubles, ask them out to lunch with waters. And I know that sounds like, oh, man, I'm not doing that shit. But I'm telling you, listen to me. You're going to meet these people at fucking bars. You're going to send them away after drinking alcohol. Are you going to go back and watch them all night? Babysit them? Make sure they're they're cared for? No. You're going to leave that to somebody else because that's what we do. We go out. We're good time. Charlie, we go out and we have a good time. And then we turn them back over to their, their normal private life. And when we go our separate ways, we go our separate ways. And unfortunately, sometimes when somebody's struggling and they've had too much to drink, they take their own life. Case in point, Dustin Samples. And he took his own life that night and he was intoxicated. And I don't know the statistics, but I'd be willing to bet that most of us out there, most of the people that take their own lives are not completely sober when they do it. Because you see, when, when you kill yourself, when you take your own life, I talk about this in my course. It's one of the hardest things a human being can do. I talk about how it, it's far from the easy way out because everybody thinks it's the easy way out, but it's just not true. Because I know when I when I wanted to take my own life, it was the hardest fucking thing I've ever had to do. Um, because the body, the, the, the human's natural instinct is to fight death. It's the will to stay, stay alive, the will to survive, fight or flight. And you have to somehow get so comfortable with death and you have to get so prepared for it in your mind that your brain can completely override that fear. Think about how powerful that must be and how difficult that must be. And it's so difficult that most people can't do it sober. They have to tie one on. They have to get that drink in them to build up the nerve to do it. Now, I know a lot of folks out there, they're taking their friends out for drinks and all this, thinking you're helping, but you're actually fucking making it worse, and they've got to knock this shit off. I had a firefighter come up to me. He was off duty in Cleveland, Tennessee. I actually went back to visit a fire station, and he uh, he came up to me. He called one of the guys that I was up there visiting and checked in to see if I was still at the station because I did an Instagram live from there, and I guess he follows me on Instagram. So he said, hey, is Travis still up there? And firefighter that I was that I was visiting they said yeah he's, he's still here and he says well hang on I'm on the way so I didn't know this gentleman I just knew he was on the way up there to to see me and when he got there something powerful happened he uh he walked up to me he had tears in his eyes and he just opened up I never met him in my life and when he opened up he didn't stop talking for several minutes and he was in front of the other firefighters too and he started crying and he started telling me all this heavy, heavy shit. And then when he was done, you know what he said to me? He looks up and he goes, I know, I'm sorry. I know I sound like a pussy right now. And that's when I went over and hugged him. And I said, absolutely not, man. I said, that's probably the strongest thing you've ever done in your life. You just don't realize it. And the dude was hurting, man. His brother was hurting bad. And 
most of it surrounded his friend Dustin's death. And he wanted answers and he wanted whys. And he kept asking, you know, he's telling me, you know, I want to know why. And I said, look, best thing I ever learned was to stop asking why for two reasons. One, you're never going to know the answer. And two, if you did know the answer, you wouldn't want to fucking know the answer. So stop asking why. And you got to get on with your life. And you got to, as, as, as hard as this is to say, you have to use it as a teaching moment. You have to use it as a training instrument. Because I always say, not, change never happens until bad happens. And that's just, the, that's the honest truth. So you could tell this guy's having problems. He went on that night and he had to, he had to go to a meeting, um, union meeting that they were having. And I went on to day two. I went to teach at day two with Cleveland Fire Department and the surrounding agencies too. Now that wasn't just Cleveland Fire Department, but afterwards it was more of the same, man. I had more people and more firefighters pulling me to the side and kind of starting to open up a little bit and they were they were talking about their struggles man and i just don't think 10 years ago none of this would happen i don't think none of this would have been possible and this is a sign that cult, the culture is actually changing guys are finally realizing like hey man this is some scary shit that we're up against and we don't have really have control over when it happens or if it happens but what we do have control over is how we can talk about it and we have the control over the fact that we don't have to feel so tough all the time and we can take our armor off and set it down. And that's a beautiful thing. Um, the third day, more of the same, we, we go out and during the break, I got questioned by a guy. He was, um, he was a Chattanooga firefighter because they, they Chattanooga fire, fire department sent some of their guys out and he was with his wife because wives and spouses are always welcome to come to these events so they can learn a little bit more about this mental wellness thing. And and he asked me, he says, man, can I ask you a question? And I said, well, I can't, I can't promise I'm going to have a fucking answer. But he asked and he says, look, he pretty much straight up said her mom, so his mother-in-law, gets on his last fucking nerve, which is, hey, that's what mother-in-laws do, right? But he said she... She wants me to go, you know, to her parents for whatever reason. And he goes, I just don't want to go. But I know I have to. How do I deal with that? And I told him, I said, look, dude. I said, there ain't nothing wrong with taking a bite out of a shit sandwich every once in a while. You get a couple bites. That don't mean you have to inhale the whole fucking sandwich. You don't have to eat the whole pile of shit. But every once in a while, if you're in a, if you're in a relationship with somebody, men, sometimes you just got to eat a little bit of shit. And we got to put our pride to the side. And he says, you know what? I'm going to do that. And <laughs> she seemed pretty fucking happy with it. And you're talking with a man of experience. Like, I'm not claiming to be an expert, but I have definitely eaten my share of shit. And I've definitely taken bites out of shit that I did not want to eat. And I can tell you after eating so, so much shit, you kind of get full on it. And you just don't want that meal anymore and you don't want to make anybody else happy by eating shit anymore so you stop eating shit and that's kind of kind of what happens and um you get you, you just have to know your limitations with how much shit you're willing to eat and i think that each situation dictates you know um every every relationship dictates i can't tell you you're not gonna be able to consume more shit sandwiches than me um, or I can consume more than you, but I'm glad that, that people are finally sitting down and they're, they're talking about it and they're talking about it with their spouses and they're doing it openly too. He didn't pull me to the side like guys do like, Hey man, let's, let me and you go over here and talk in private. He put it out right there in front of his wife and she knows and he knows and it's transparent and it sounds to me like the communication is starting to fucking work with them. And that's, a, that's a cool thing. Um, but after that, after the third day, it's getting kind of like I'm sitting here rubbing my hands, man, because I got, I felt so horrible for this firefighter because she, she came up to me after this event and she was telling me how she was on the Chattanooga bus wreck a couple years ago or last year, or last year, or the year before it, I can't remember the exact year. It was a, it was a um, school bus that wrecked and it killed four, four children. And she said she was involved in that wreck, man. And she came up and she just started breaking down. And she broke down right there. I hugged her two times. 
you know, said what I could say, but what do you say? You know, it's uh, when somebody's at their most vulnerable stage, a lot of times there's not anything to say. You just need to listen. You need to be there, but be there for them because they're, they're unloading because they trust you. And you got to remember that. A lot of people are so quick to, when someone comes up to unload, they're quick to push them off. But it takes a lot for somebody to come to you in the first place. They, they have to trust you. Like, I can't just go up and unload my shit on somebody I don't know. I don't trust them. And so she said what she said. And, you know, we had a short conversation. And then we then we moved on. And so each day, I'm trying to, I'm, I wanna, I'm trying to give this build up for you. So each day after the events in um, Chattanooga or uh, Cleveland, you know, we were going to lunch afterwards, going to dinner with folks, hanging out and, and, and talking. And it was a lot of trauma talk, all right? We would go to lunch and sit around the table with a group of people. And they wanted to talk trauma. And I get it. I understand it. Listen, the problem is my world is trauma 24-7 until I, until I consciously unplug it. Most people, their world's not trauma 24-7. They, they work or they talk about it, and when they're done talking about it, they go to normal lives, they go do normal jobs, um, but they're not constantly immersed in it. I'm constantly immersed in it, so I have to be very cognizant of how much time I want to be living inside of this this trauma bubble. So I leave lunch, and then i got to go to dinner, right? And now I'm sitting at dinner with people that were at the event, and now they want to talk trauma. And... They want to unload some of their stuff, which is fine. I'm not. I'm not complaining. This is what I'm. What I'm getting at is this. It's. It's. It's exhausting. It's mentally exhausting, and it, it's. Uh, it's overwhelming to be honest with you. And uh, it's so raw. When I'm teaching my courses, I. I normally have trouble sleeping because I have to relive moments that I don't really care to, but it's for the greater good, so I do it. And then. Whenever, when they, when I say when these people do trauma dumps, they come up and they dump all their trauma on top of your trauma. It's like, you're just full of fucking trauma. So anyway, so three days goes and we, and we have great events now. I'm not, I mean, we had great events in Cleveland. I think it was very constructive and, uh, they got a lot of good feedback. I got a lot of good feedback and it's helping make sense of some things. Um, especially because they were touched so recently in that community. Well, Thursday, I go to the um, professional, I'm going to fuck this all up, the Tennessee Professional Firefighters Conference, all right? And that morning, all of the union representatives from across the state were in there. All the um, the big cities, Nashville, Memphis, Chattanooga, Knoxville, and all the towns in between, Cleveland, um, Johnson City, all, all tons of other, Bristol, Tennessee, just tons of other departments. So all of the figureheads from the um, from the unions were there, all the union representatives, the presidents, the vice presidents, stuff like that. And now I got to go up and talk for thirty minutes again that morning on trauma, and I have to talk on about post traumatic purpose and mental wellness in the fire service. And I'll be honest with you, I'm not used to speaking for just thirty minutes. I'm used to either teaching for three to four hours, or I'm used to at least speaking for an hour to an hour and a half. So I had a lot to say in 30 minutes and that shit, I I got passionate in there and and, and it's more of the same stuff, you know, like what we're doing to one another by by enabling one another and how we're not really being there for everybody else kind of thing or being there for one another, but we're there for everybody else and we can't even be there for our fucking selves. And it's just more of a slap in the face kind of wake up call like, hey, Throw some throw some cold water in your face. Like, look, this shit's staring us right in the face. And a lot of us aren't doing anything about it. Granted, as a whole in the fire service, we're trying to implement change. The problem is this. And this is what I run into when I'm out on the road. You ready? Travis, we try to get somebody here to teach us about this stuff. We try to get people here to talk about this stuff. But they come and they talk over us. And they, what they're doing is they're sending the wrong representatives. And they're sending people with fucking flyers and charts and graphs. And it's the same thing. Every city I go to, I hear the same exact message. The mental health training is fucking boring. Everybody, when they hear that, they're like, oh, fuck. Nails on the chalkboard. We got to go in and talk about this. 
again, we got to go listen to this psychiatrist talk about it's okay to not be okay. What the fuck does a psychiatrist know if it's okay to not be okay? Get the fuck out of here. We're someone that can relate, and that's what I constantly run into. That's why I'll keep doing this day in and day out, day in and day out. I do tell, I will tell you this. If you want some tight-ass T-shirts, go to Cleveland, Tennessee. That's a prerequisite to be on the Cleveland, Tennessee Fire Department. It's like you have to stop by a hotel in the morning and throw your uniform shirt in an industrial dryer. Um, You have to do that. So it sucks your body so tight that your fucking nipples, you can hang key rings on them, and you can see a heartbeat, and you have to damn well, it has to be choking you almost to the point where it's asphyxiating. God damn it. Exfixiating. Am I saying it right? Shit, I can't remember. Um, Exfixiating. There we go. Son of a bitch. And there's two Zacks on that department. I swear they're in fucking competition with one another. Because you don't, first of all, you don't just have two Zacks and they're both swollen to the point they're about to bust. And it it was just hilarious to see these two Zacks with the goddamn... Tight-ass shirts. And another dude named Wes, whatever his name was. That, that son of a bitch. We'll call y'all out. God damn it. Beautiful things can happen when you are traveling around the country and you're sitting down and you're talking about this stuff. See, it, there is there is a lot of beauty in this. And I think, check this out. This is one of the th- I don't know if, if how, to, how to implement this. All right? But I was sitting down talking with the union president one night and we are talking about a peer support program and we were talking about how what happens when that phone rings in the middle of the night when somebody finally conjures up the nerve to call and ask for help and that phone call goes unanswered? What happens? You got to realize what it takes for somebody to come forward, what it takes for somebody to ask for help. They are, they are so vulnerable. They feel like they have nothing left in this world. That's what a lot of people feel like. And this is their only hope is somebody picking up that goddamn phone on the other end. And when it goes unanswered, maybe they try somebody else. Maybe they don't. But while sitting down with his union president, I said, what goes on with the peer team if you have multiple numbers? And I, let's say I'm on the side of the road getting ready to end my life, and I just want to hear somebody's voice and, and maybe, just maybe, talk me out of this thing, right? And what we came up with was this. These, these calls cannot go unanswered, ever. So if you have five people on your peer support team, what you do is you forward a, one number. You have one number that makes everybody on that peer's team, peer support team ring, their phone ring, all simultaneously. And whoever answers, answers it, but it will not go unanswered. And it's something so simple. It's like a light bulb went off. We're like, wait, why isn't this? And I'm sure it is in, in, in place in some places, but where we were, that wasn't in place. And it was like, Holy shit, this could be a good option for a member that is struggling on our department. So that's a beautiful thing. Therefore, we don't have to miss any calls. And I think back to that kid that was in in Indiana one time. And he reached out to me on Instagram because he had no one else to reach out to. And had I not answered the Instagram, I can't say whether that kid would be here or not. But I'd like to think that because somebody did answer... His circumstances are a little bit different today and are better, right? We also talked about having the right people in a peer support team. I think some departments got to make the hard decision, especially these close-knit departments where everybody's real like, real tight. And they put the buddies on peer support teams and shit like that. I don't necessarily think that's the best idea, especially the people that you know are big drinkers. I don't think peer support teams need to be comprised of Drinkers, like big drinkers. Um, I think, I'm not saying that, uh, hang on, I got some notes here I'm trying to look at. I'm not saying you can't have a couple drinks, but goddamn, if your phone rings and all your peer support team's drunk every fucking weekend, who who is that benefiting again? You know, like we got to think about this stuff. Another thing is we, we were talking about anonymity, and uh, I think some people have a hard time opening up to their own peer support team because they're, you know, there's, there's an old saying in emergency service, especially the fire department, tell a, tell a friend, tell a fireman, 
of you can't keep secret at firehouse. And so the last thing I'd want to do is like, say if you're on a smaller department is open up to somebody who could potentially expose all of my business or use it against me later. Right. When this person, what if that peer support member, you, you entrust them and now they promote up the chain. And one day they're, they're a fucking supervisor of yours. And now you're treated differently because you know, five, six years ago, you opened up about some pretty dark shit you're going through and some shady shit you might be doing on the side. And and think about how that could affect you. So what we sat there and talked about with Cleveland fire department, I said, look, man, what if you guys, cause they're, they're close to Chattanooga. They're right down the street. I said, what if you guys offered peer support for Chattanooga and Chattanooga offer peer support for you guys. Just switch it up a little bit because that way there's anonymity. Because the last thing I'd want to do also is live in a fire station and have to go work with an individual where I just unveiled the darkest shit of my life. This person now knows. And now we're working in a firehouse having to pretend like he doesn't know. You know? How how you going to go in there and tell him about your ass-to-mouth fetish that you have? And then he pretends like you don't have an ass to mouth fetish when y'all are sitting there having chili at, at, at the firehouse table. You know, like seriously, and he can't say anything about it because of anonymity, man, please. These were the old days. You'd be exposed for the ass to mouth fetish. I'm just saying, like, I know that was a stupid reference, but listen, think about it. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think that more people would be compelled to reaching out and getting help if they knew without a doubt, 100% without a doubt, there would be complete anonymity and nothing could be held against them. Sometimes you learn something every day. And uh, my girl Carly pointed out to me not too long ago, like a couple days ago. Did you guys know that, that the word resonate does not have a G in it? Apparently, we got a grammar Nazi listening to the podcast. And goddamn, I, I always say resonate like there's a G. But I guess I was thinking the G is silent when you spell it. I don't know what's going on. But so now... I was told that I need to change up my resonate word or resignate word to resonate. Y'all know how I roll. Uh, I'm not changing shit. So I'm going back to resignate. And I hope this episode is resonating with all of you motherfuckers. I was having dinner with another firefighter one night and we were talking about how, you know, triggers and everything set us off and we don't understand why we behave the way that we behave sometimes or how, how quick and irrational our reactions thing tend to get to things. And I don't have, I don't have to fucking answer for that, but, but I, but I do get it because it hits home with me. You know, that saying there's no, there's no need to cry over spilled milk or there's no use in crying over spilled milk. When a kid spills milk at my table, I freak the fuck out. Like I'm, I don't cry, but I freak out and I'm trying to get it. Not so much now, but back in the day before I had a real grip on, this thing that had a grip on me, my reactions were way overboard and they were way beyond that of a normal person. I would get so mad that I'd usually blurt out something inappropriate, slam a fucking door and leave. I mean, I hate to say it, but for being transparent, here it is. And it was, I was so fucked up inside that any, the slightest disruption in my life sent my, my, my body into an internal like turmoil that I can't even explain. And it was scary and it was hard to snap out of that shit for the longest time. Now I have a better control over everything these days. Am I perfect? No. Um, but if milk gets spilled now, I can, you know, look at it and, and instead of jumping up and being like, God damn fucking kids and walking out of the walking out of the house and slamming the door. Now I just shake my head and I'd say something inside like son of a bitch, fucking kids. <laughs> you know, I don't there's no reaction to it anymore. Or the reaction is extremely minimal, but it took a long, long time to get to that point. And I think clearly that's all too common with people that are that are going through some of the things that we've been through don't know why we do that i don't need a medical diagnosis i don't need an expert to fucking tell me why all i want to know is can it get better and 
I, th- I say, yeah, because I'm living proof of that too. It gets better with time and it gets better as we learn to be in control of our reactions, which I've talked about in other episodes. And once you realize it don't mean nothing like other episodes, all these other episodes, all this bullshit that I spout off at the mouth, it all starts to make sense now when I hear myself say these things. It takes a long time to get through. You got to have a good support base. You can't have somebody or some someone or some people who are in, enabling you to not be the best you that you can be. You need to be 100% in charge of your faculties. You need to be in control of yourself. And the only way to do that is to surround yourself with people who support you and not in, enable you. And if you're enabling, you like I said, we got to stop it. Some people don't even realize they're enabling. Some people just don't know. They think they're being a better friend by meeting up with you and having those drinks with you. They think they're doing the right thing. Because, sure, if they had a crystal ball, if they could shake it and be like, look, we're going to get fucked up today. And then tonight you're going to go home and blow your brains out because you weren't thinking correctly. They'd never have that drink with you. So we have to treat it like that every time, especially when we know someone's struggling. We have to treat it as if, hey, look, there's a chance that could happen. And I don't want to be part of that. I had my buddy Ben Jones on the road with me. So if you've read my book, you've, you've read about my buddy Big Ben Jones. And he's uh, he's a piece of shit. I'll tell him to his face to so fuck him. Let me tell you why Ben Jones is a piece of shit. Let me tell you. <laughs> we ended the week in uh, Cleveland and Tennessee and Chattanooga, Tennessee with a, with a big comedy event for the 303 Project. And for the Tennessee Professional Firefighter Association. If I'm sure I fucked that all up. So the two of them combined, they they did a, uh, a comedy event that was it was it was different. It was different. It was a lot of fun, but it was different. It was outside, and it looked like we were like doing the goddamn show where a bunch of chickens would live. It was, but it was cool, and I made fun of that, and I love that because I've been able to perform in every single kind of venue you can think of except a goddamn chicken coop, and now I can say I've done that. Um, but this is why Ben Jones is a piece of shit because one. I told Ben, Ben, you and I on paper are not friends. Like you can look at the way Ben views the world and look at the way Travis Howes views the world and look at Vin, the way, look at which way Ben leans on the political spectrum and look at the way I lean. We on paper, we are not meant to even fucking like be in the same car, but I love Ben Jones. I've been, he's been with me for a long time. I've been with him for a long time and, and we click. We're so different. We just, we click. So anyways, Ben comes up and does a show. They got us put up at the Doubletree downtown in Chattanooga, one of the nicest hotels you can be put at, right? So Ben, sorry, motherfucker. I give Ben a free room. I let him crash in my room, okay? I could have made him pay for a room, but to save him some money, I said, Ben, you just sleep in my room. And Ben stays in my room. And then he wants to start then he wants to start complaining the next morning. He's got a beautiful sunrise. You can see the mountains over Chattanooga. Nice colored sky with the mountains and shit. And Ben's laying there complaining. And I said, Ben, you're a piece of shit. I was like, you're sitting here at the double tree with a beautiful mountain sunrise. And you're fucking complaining about what? So if y'all see Ben Jones, tell him I said fuck him. It's gonna lead me to the last segment of this is um on the way home, I set up a, I set up a conference. Well, not a conference, but a FaceTime video chat with my therapist because I needed it. I had to have it. I was, um, I was so mentally f- fatigued. And what she told me was that I was experiencing compassion fatigue. And this was a new word for me because y'all know I can't spell compassion or fatigue, but. She said that's exactly what I was experiencing. I pulled over at a at a fucking truck stop and we FaceTimed for an hour. And I sat there and I told her and I was like, look, I I want to be as helpful as I can, but I also need to be the best that I can be for everybody else. And I don't know. I said, because part of the problem, I'm trying to take care of so many people, and I know that I'm not taking the best care of myself in doing so because I don't have the time to do that sometimes. And it reminded me of Dustin and it scared me a little bit. I started thinking about that. 
and how his wife told me when she looks at me and she hears me and she hears what I say, it's mirror image of him. And you can't help but to think, you know, um, I like to think I'm, I'm the strongest man alive. I love to think about that, but I also know the truth to that. And a lot of it's a big front, you know, because I'm constantly, uh, I got to constantly put on a happy face and I constantly have to present that appearance like, Hey man, I got this. I've learned the secret. I got the recipe, but that's not the truth. The truth is I don't have this. I don't have the fucking recipe, but I'm willing to figure it out and I'm willing to fight every single fucking day and I'm willing to claw my way through this thing to be happy. You know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not checking out. And then when she told me about compassion fatigue, she also said, you know what, Travis, she goes, you've actually talked about secondary trauma exposure in some of your episodes. And that's exactly what you're opening yourself up to. You're opening yourself up to secondary trauma exposure. So it's only getting worse for you. And I never thought of it that way. I, I, I remember in the beginning doing this podcast. I was like, hey, hit me up because I was excited about this podcast. I was like, hit me up. Share your experiences with me. I'll talk about them on the podcast. And now I'm realizing that probably wasn't the smartest play. But look, we learn as we go. And that's what this is all about. This is an educational forum, kind of, some shit talking. But I'm learning as I go too, man. And I, I'm in this fight with everybody. It's I can't be constantly exposing myself to secondary trauma. I can't get to the point where I'm trying to shoulder everyone else's burden and I get burned out with compassion fatigue because I got to It fucks me up. I got to be able to set boundaries. That's what we, that's what we kind of came up with at the end of our phone call. And I was like, look, well, this was her suggestion. She says, look, Travis, you can't do it all. And you've got to be able to set boundaries. You've got to either have times where you're not even going to discuss this stuff. You've got to have times where you're off of social media and you unplug for a day or two. You don't have to explain to anybody. You don't have to say anything. You just unplug. You've got to do what you got to do. Um, how you handle people approaching you is a different story. Now, I actually called a buddy of mine who does it for a living. He's been doing it a lot longer than I have. And he told me, he has to straight up tell them, tell people sometimes, look, I can't handle hearing about that right now. I got my own stuff I got to deal with. And he says, as dickish as it sounds, sometimes it's necessary. Um, Because I never want somebody to feel, the problem with me is I never want somebody to feel like they can't come to me. Because I think together, obviously we're more powerful and we can figure things out. But I do have to keep in in mind that if I'm going to have any kind of longevity as an advocate for mental wellness, I better damn well be taking care of my mental wellness. And I think I think that applies to all of you as well. If you're going through something, you can't be shouldering everybody else's stuff. Can you be can you be a shoulder to lean on? Yes. Do you have to be those shoulders to carry them? No. But a shoulder to lean on means just that. Like you can lean on me. Let's figure something out together. And I can get you to the right person who can potentially carry that load. That being a therapist, being a clinician, being a doctor. And I think, I, I don't think, I know that a lot of people ultimately end up meet their demise because they just feel like they're carrying too much. And I talk about that. This is something I've talked about in a long, for a long time with post-traumatic purpose. It's it's, I call it the weight example. It's how, and I talk about it in my book, actually, when you're carrying so much weight, you just don't feel like you can take another step. And when, and what leads us to suicide is you, you honestly just need a break. And that's the only way out. And that's the only way that you feel you can take that break sometimes. And it's fucking sad, but it's so true. By the time by the time this episode comes out next Monday, I will, I will have just gotten back from Baltimore. Where I'm flying to Baltimore for the Emerald Society. And I told you in the last episode, for 
um, Baltimore County, Baltimore City Fire and Police are doing post-traumatic purpose presentation where we're going to talk about mental wellness, leadership, and resiliency. And then later that evening, myself and that piece of shit, Ben Jones, we're doing a comedy event. Um, and then I'm flying back home and then I'm, I'm back home for a day. And then I go to Jacksonville, Florida, where I'm going to be, um, down there speaking to the bearing the burden first responder summit. And then I come back home for, for a little bit and then back to Orlando, Florida for a, a mental health seminar, a mental health, um, keynote presentation at a health and safety conference. And I'm excited to do all that. I lo- absolutely love doing what I do, but I'm also realizing the importance of setting boundaries. And I always talk about balance in life, right? I think one of my first episodes was talking about that. And again, I got to practice what I preach and I got, I got to figure this stuff out along the way. I'm not trying to make this episode all about my bullshit and I'm not trying to make this episode all about um, my tour schedule, but I think it's important to show a lot of times we get overwhelmed. We get, we get stressed out. We try to be there for everybody. We try to carry too much. We try to appear a lot stronger than we are. And this is all the things that I'm after with my overall message. And I'm I'm actually doing all of that right now. And I'm not taking my own advice. And so this is me just being straight with you guys saying, look, I got to be aware of this constantly. And so should you. I live and work in this environment constantly. And I'm still lose sight of that. Sometimes I lose, I lose the focus and I have to readjust and I have to refocus. So if you're not constantly in this world and, and you don't step back to think about all the stressors in life and everything that's like spinning out of control and all the weight that you're carrying, if you don't take a step back and say, look, just pump the fucking brakes, let me handle what I can on my plate right now. And until I can get refocused and re-energized. And I'm hoping this message is coming across that way that just through this last week of what I've experienced, that if if you find yourself feeling that way, look, it's okay, but you got to stop and you got to take care of you. And so that's what I did. I went out to my farm for three days. I I left my phone inside the house every day when my dad and I were out there working. I didn't answer it. I didn't look at it. Two nights I went in there, went to bed. I didn't even look at the motherfucker at all. And it felt amazing, honestly. I didn't didn't really care what was going on in the world. I told my wife, I was like, if you have an emergency, call my dad's phone. And that was it. I didn't need to hear from anybody. Didn't need to do anything. And I think sometimes we just get so engaged and we're so worried about what's on our phone, who's liking our shit, um, what's everybody else doing. What what are these other 10,000 fucking people doing who I've never met personally? (laughs) What are they doing? Um... And are they seeing what I'm doing? And that, that creates its own stress, let alone the news. So I hope through this episode you found that, hey, it's okay to not be okay. It really is. And it's perfectly fucking normal to get overwhelmed with life, with your job, with spouses, with kids, with friends, and with, with honestly, just trying to carry too much. It's perfectly okay. And it, and it happens to every single one of us at times. But we got to stop and recognize it. I want to encourage you guys to go over to 303 Project on Instagram and give them a follow. They're, they're, they're new. They're a new organization, but they're setting up to do really good things. They're really hell-bent on making a difference in this business with, with mental wellness. And I'm certainly in their corner, and I hope that you're in their corner. So go to their Instagram page, give them a like, give them a follow, and uh, just, just support them. And um, that, that'd be fucking phenomenal. I was trying to think of a good story to leave you guys with, and uh, I'm sitting here looking at my notepad. And I don't have a good story, but I got a website that y'all can go check out. Uh, it says gotdonkeys.com. And I guess apparently when I was looking for donkeys, <laughs> this fucking, I was looking for some donkeys for my farm. I was on the phone with somebody, and they told me they dropped this website on me. So if y'all want some donkeys, I can imagine if something ever happened to me, and. Somebody had to come into my house and clean up all my shit. And they look at all these notes I got. And they'll be like, what was this motherfucker into? Gotdonkeys.com. Like, and then they start flipping the pages. And then they see something like rotisserie, rotisserie chicken can kiss my ass. That That's the next thing it says. And then there's one that says best friends farm. 
the fucking investigators would be like, what in the fuck is this dude doing? This note, this this note says white trash in the ditch. That's all it says on this paper. If I, I'm telling you, I can make a whole episode just by going down notes. I don't even know what that means, but it just says white trash in the ditch. All right, here go. Here, here's a good one. I came across a story. Of, um, I was gonna tell some of this shit in my book. I was looking for something to tell y'all, and I may have found a really awkward story. So I have to leave the names out to protect those involved but uh let's just say i was performing at the funny bone comedy club in richmond virginia years ago and my buddy randy and i were on the way back home his house was in virginia beach and so after our final show we were heading back home down the interstate and randy got a little bored and something tripped his cameras on his phone so he says let's see what's going on in the living room because the living room has spotted some motion and unbeknownst to us his roommate at the time, who's a really good friend of ours at the time, um, was in the living room with his brand new girlfriend. And this was their first evening, their first real intimate evening together. Now, I'll let you um, figure out what was going on. But let's just say Randy and I had front row seats to the biggest show in his house that night while we were driving down the interstate. And the show only lasted about three minutes, possibly three minutes and 27 seconds all right and during that three minutes and 27 seconds we pull over to the emergency lane we're dying laughing we're, we're we're hysterically crying because this was just an awkward show that we were watching from his phone and um it was it was beautiful <laughs> so randy starts taking screenshots of, of the episode and immediately started forwarding them to our friend and but see while well, he was he was a little preoccupied at the time but afterwards he went to check his phone and we got to watch the whole thing we got to watch him check his phone and look on his fucking face when he checked his phone and saw these screenshots and turned around with that oh shit look looking back at the camera his um his girlfriend didn't like us i'll just say that i didn't you know look we weren't being nasty. We were just driving down the road. Man has a right to check his damn security cameras, doesn't he? You know, and we can't help what's on the other end of it. It just happened to be one of those, one of them things. So that's one of the notes on my my notepad. Look, you guys, I hope y'all go kick some ass. Chris, if you're mowing grass at the church this weekend, try not to be yelling out obscenities. You know who you are, motherfucker. Hey, I love y'all. Y'all have a great week. Bye.